Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Free Culture Radio. Efforts are ongoing around the world to better align national and international drug policies with other crucial areas of concern, including protecting the environment, conserving nature, tackling climate change, and upholding the rights of indigenous peoples. To date, only limited steps have been taken to illuminate the intersections between drug policy and the environment, and even less to bring global regimes into alignment. In fact, many national drug policies and the international drug control system often operate at odds with these other issue areas. So on this edition of Free Culture Radio, we take a look at the environment, specifically at aligning drug policy with environmental protection. That was the title of a side event that was held at the 66th session of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which took place recently in Vienna, Austria. The event, which was organized by the Transnational Institute, the governments of Brazil and Colombia, the Global Drug Policy Observatory, Health Poverty Action, the International Drug Policy Consortium, Open Society Foundations, Visa Mutop, and the Washington Office on Latin America, explored how punitive drug policies have empowered organized crime and accelerated environmental degradation. Let's hear first from Kendra McSweeney, professor of geography at The Ohio State University, speaking on the impacts of drug policy on the environment. Two weeks ago, I was visiting this mangrove wetland on Costa Rica's Pacific coast. It's a small but vital part of the estimated 147 million hectares of mangroves that encircle the globe, providing key ecosystem services like carbon capture and storage, coastal protection, and fisheries management. This is why the IPCC urges mangrove protection worldwide, and it's why these Costa Rican wetlands are recognized under the Ramsar Convention uh, for their biological and ecological economic importance to coastal people's livelihoods, including the eco-tour that I was part of. But as I learned on that trip, the future of these mangroves hinges as much on biodiversity conventions as as it does on the drug policies uh, that are being brokered here in Vienna uh, this week. Our superb guide, uh, Carlos, made the connections clear. He told us that over the past six years, ever since the US Coast Guard had increased patrol pressures on the high seas, trafficking, smugglers running cocaine and marijuana by boat from Colombia to Northern Central America had been using the wetlands for drug storage and fuel provisioning, and they're paying uh, local people's unheard of sums to ferry gasoline to them. The effects of their activities are inescapable. Channels are being cut through the mangroves. Young men are leaving fishing and ecotourism for easy money facilitating trafficking. Some have gone to jail. Some have been killed. Others are laundering illicit earnings in the fishing and ecotourism businesses in ways that make it much harder for legitimate businesses like Carlos to compete and which put further pressure on an already uh, diminished fish stock. Others are using drug dollars to expand oil palm plantations and cattle pasture into the wetlands. It's illegal, but no one speaks about these environmentally destructive dynamics because no one trusts anyone anymore. Not members of fishing cooperatives, not neighbors, not the police. In effect, Carlos summarized in this small but vital site what I and my collaborators have spent the past 10 years documenting at larger scales across 
uh, Central uh, America, what others have documented in South America, and what others have documented around the world. And that is that the global drug regime is orthogonal to building the sorts of environmental and climate resilience that the planet urgently needs. Let me scale out from Carlos's insights to highlight three mechanisms by which this happens. First, uh, and I, I want to say I base my comments on a pretty, I would argue, a compelling body of evidence, a small part of which is presented uh, here if you'd like to learn more details. But first, I want to be very clear that I'm not talking about the impact of drug crop production on the environment. That is for other speakers to discuss. What I'm talking about is how dramatic environmental harms concentrate in spaces of drug transit and are associated with the investment of drug profits in those spaces. And that originates in the fact that counter-narcotic police and military actions relentlessly push traffickers into remote frontier areas. Uh, often in indigenous lands and protected areas. But these remote biodiverse areas are not just logistically convenient, they are also frontiers. So from a business perspective, they represent ideally undercapitalized spaces that are superb for absorbing surplus capital from the drug trade. In, through the transformation of forests uh, into oil palm plantations, cattle pastures, aguacate plantations, lo que sea. These are great ways to launder dollars and diversify income and asset portfolios for traffickers. So to be clear, drug traffickers, for drug traffickers destroying forests and land grabbing is logistically and financially best practice. Second, uh, just as Carlos made clear in Costa Rica as elsewhere, the profitability of drug trafficking means that the trade can seriously distort rural economies. No legitimate activity can compete with a trade that generates billions of dollars annually. In some Central American countries, profits from cocaine transshipment in some years have exceeded direct foreign investment and the value of agricultural exports. The tsunami of drug dollars pulls rural land and labor out of food production, increases the price of staple goods, and further subsidizes extractive activities like gold mining, wildlife trafficking, and illegal, illegal timber harvests. These environmental crimes are more often than not made possible by capital from the drug trade. Third, the IPCC's recent climate change and land uh, report identifies several policy levers that can protect existing forests and restore degraded forest lands, such as capacity building to support resilient biodiverse uh, food production systems and democratic responsive governance systems to manage land at multiple scales. But what happens when existing forests and lands ripe for restoration are coveted or controlled by organized criminals enriched by the drug trade? There is much evidence to show us that effective man the effective management required for their protection is fundamentally undercut by the violent power of organized crime, who will always prioritize their business interests uh, over environmental protection. And as we know too well, and as uh, the governor has just told us, uh, traffickers will kill or compromise anyone who might stand in their way. There is just too much money in the drug trade too much power to control the fate of too much of the world's lands and forests. We have learned from 50 years of counter-narcotic policy that there is virtually no amount of military aid, development aid, or anti-corruption initiatives or governance capacity building that can compete. 
Anyone on the ground in the world's tropical frontiers knows this, and they know why. Because they understand what makes Narcos so rich and powerful in the first place. People like Carlos know. He had an enviably straightforward analysis for the social and environmental problems he was witnessing in his community. The real problem, he said, was that drugs were illegal. Being illegal made their trade risky, which made them expensive, which meant lots of money. He was emphatic that there will always be demand for drugs. He said controlling drugs in the way that alcohol is controlled was a possible path forward. But not just in one place, he cautioned. As you can read here, he made a good case for global legal regulation. So to align drug policy with environmental protection, I think we should listen. That was Kendra McSweeney, professor of geography at The Ohio State University, speaking on the impacts of drug policy on the environment. David Bewley Taylor is a professor of international relations at Swansea University's School of Social Sciences and the founding director of the Global Drug Policy Observatory. So in terms of international drug policy, then, this is in many ways, I think, another dimension of the age-old problem of system-wide coherence. And this is something that Kendra alluded to. And arguably, however, when we're working towards coherence, it's getting more, more pressing as there's a growing understanding of how what's often referred to as the global drug control regime or various variations of that, and then a range of related policy interventions uh, beneath that intersect with an array of interconnected elemental regimes or regime complexes, including those relating to two associated areas, human rights, and then within that, indigenous rights, and the environment. Um, After all, drug policy at all levels of governance is a classic example of a cross-cutting issue. And these are issues that were flagged up by the CND chair in his opening remarks. Now, I think it's fair to say, I think it wouldn't be unfair to say, that what goes on here in Vienna, it's been quite slow to appreciate these interconnections. And furthermore, where the connection is made, some actors inevitably remain resistant, and while progress has certainly been achieved in some areas, there often remain significant tensions. And of course, the example for this is between drug policy and human rights, and we've seen it in many parts of the Commission over the week. Now, clearly there has been progress, but more work certainly needs to be done. And closely related to Indigenous rights in particular is a currently far less visible regime intersection where more work definitely needs to be done. And this relates to global drug control and what we can define as the global environmental regime or regime complex, including within that what we might want to define as the biodiversity regime complex. And I think biodiversity is an issue that often gets overlooked in the very welcome debate about drugs policy and climate change. And of course, it's very important with, in, in relation to a range of policies targeting crops deemed to be illicit, but also, again, as, as Kendra alluded to, also in relation to what happens around transit hubs. So this slide, apologies it's so uh, dense, is really an early attempt just to map drug policy on top of existing intersections within the, the biodiversity complex and identify points of tension. Now, I think of particular relevance here, and this is just what I want to highlight, is um, the 1992 Convention on Biological Diversity. And this is particularly relevant to our discussions in light of the recent COP15 meeting and the 30 by 30 target. Now, within the CBD, 
um, there's recognition, explicit recognition for the first time that conservation of biological diversity is a common concern for humankind and an integral part of the development process. And within this context, um, I think it is in many ways positive to see last year the passage of the, the annual AD, Alternative Development Resolution uh, 65.1, which within the title as well as the content spoke about measures to protect the environment. And among other things, the resolution flagged up the work of the CBD and crucially encouraged member states to deploy relevant human development indicators. And as many of you probably know, within the cow at the moment, there's discussions about L3. There's lots of good things in L3, um, particularly, I think, the explicit mention of Indigenous peoples. That would be capital I, capital P. But we'd have to see what, <coughs> excuse me, survives negotiations as the week moves on. Now, this point about indicators and metrics, I think, is crucial in moving away from generalised and abstract discussions and to highlight the need to start thinking in a very practical terms about how to facilitate and, where necessary, soften the, these regime interfaces. And, in fact, the CBD sets up a framework for impact assessment and minimising adverts impacts. That's under Article 14. But I think we can and should go further on this. For example, along similar lines to the idea of introducing human rights, risk and impact assessments for new laws and drug policies, why not work on developing a specific biodiversity risk assessment framework to model environmental impacts? So to conclude then, I think as it's been argued elsewhere, as complexity and regime intersections increase, I think we're likely to see the emergence of a new architecture within which international drug policy operates. And where the environment is concerned, to borrow the earlier terminology, there now exists a web of interactions involving system-wide initiatives like the SDGs. Um, crucial documents like the UN System Common Position on Drugs, uh, a range of actors beyond member states, so UN agencies, NGOs, and then above this, an array of regimes and associated state obligations. I think that's the key, the key point here, state obligations. So, you know, perhaps we, we might want to call this the global governance complex for drug control. I don't know. But whichever way it's framed, the often conflictual relationship between drug policy and the protection of biological diversity and how that relates to indigenous rights is an issue that's too important to ignore and deserves increased attention at all levels of governance, including here in Vienna, and particularly as we prepare for the midterm review next year. That was David Bewley-Taylor, Professor of International Relations at Swansea University and the founding director of the Global Drug Policy Observatory. He spoke on regime complexity, implications for drug policy and biodiversity at a side event entitled Aligning Drug Policy with Environmental Protection that was held at the 66th session of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which was held recently in Vienna, Austria. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. Let's hear more about aligning drug policy with environmental protection. John Alexander Rojas Cabrera is the governor of Nariño, Colombia. Cordial saludo a todas y todos. Soy John Rojas, gobernador del departamento de Nariño. Hello to all. I am the governor of Nariño. 
another victim of the conflict in Colombia. The FARC killed my father 25 years ago. Reconciliation and pardon changed my life and the life of my family. And since then, I have dedicated myself to being a defender of peace, for greater well-being for my daughters, for our sons, and for the Nariñenses and all Colombians. I'm arriving here to accompany the Vice President of Colombia, who was in Mexico, with the negotiations of the ELN. We continue to support the process, including the total peace that our President, Gustavo Petro, the change government has proposed. I thank the United Nations and the UNODC, the Foreign Ministry, Vice Minister Laura Hill, the Ambassador, and all the team of the Embassy to permit my participation. And thank you to all the institutions and activists that defend the environment. Nariño is a department in the southwest of Colombia, 1,600,000 people, 33,000, 33% is part of an ethnic population, indigenous and Afro. We have a geostrategic place because the Pacific and the Andes and the Amazon are part of our state. We have uh, UNESCO um, heritage, including the carnival, and we have this understanding around um, grass and mopa mopa. We have this richness, this biodiverse richness. Unfortunately, there are 56 thousand hectares of coca that are cultivated in Colombia. This is 28% of the total coca cultivation in Colombia. This, this represents 174 million dollars, 271 million in the pasta base, and 386 million in hydrochloride cocaine. Drug control policies based in glyphosate and aerial uh, spraying and forced eradication have failed in Nariño after a week of aspersions, particularly in our, in our zone. This has contributed to an increase in cultivation. We have demonstrated that it is not a solution. It is a po policy that has failed and that before everything has had negative consequences in the security of people. In Nariño, in 2022, there have been 67 homicides, 46% of them. There have been 167. 46% have died in the municipality of Tumaco. They have assassinated 
34 leaders, three community leaders, 32 social leaders, 19 of them indigenous, four Afro, three community leaders, and one peasant leader. There are 13 structures that are at the margin of the law and that dispute territory. This conflict has brought us to this issue where the conclusion I can make is that there is a global market that is growing, demanding um, the consumption of drugs. Nariño with, its, with our social conditions and our geographic conditions and we understand that, that we have a business and a commercialization that comes from the coca and the presence of non-state um, actors and that the state presence has been weak. Therefore, we propose that we need to do a transformation of this illegal economy towards a legal, gradual we are proposing a de development plan, an integrated development plan along in our zone where Tumaco can be a strategic port for Colombia and the world and to connect us with Brazil the defense of the environment and the search for total peace is what we are looking for in this so that our Afro-Indigenous and Campesino brothers and sisters can live in peace. We want to um, reduce the illegal logging and illegal cultivation because that's putting at risk our environment. For that reason, our petition, our, our request is that these territories, these diverse territories, will be given um, this support from all nations. That was John Alexander Rojas Cabrera, the governor of Nariño, Colombia. Just enough time left to hear from Marta Machado, National Secretary for Drug Policy in Brazil. I think it's extremely urgent that we connect drug policies with environmental protection. And uh, when we talk about environment, uh, the kind of urgency we have is exceptional. I thank my colleagues. That was, uh, I was really impressed with, with their presentations. I just want to give a, a final comment on the situation on the Brazilian Amazon. I think you all know that the last government uh, interrupted the surveillance uh, on the Amazon. Uh, in fact, it, uh, they, the government exonerated officials who have acted against the organized crime, defended the invasion of indigenous land, and supported illegal mining. So, uh, during the last government, Brazil reached the highest deforestation rates in 15 years. Destruction uh, of the Amazon was raised to historic levels. Illegal mining also has raised... Um, and expanded, especially inside indigenous territory, territories as never before, uh, with dramatic consequences, as you all saw the, the recent images of the Yanomani uh, people uh, uh, with 
dying uh, of many diseases that came with the illegal mining outside. The rivers were all contaminated with mercurio and they had no, no food. So in the, the fact that uh, the government create this free zone without surveillance, uh, it uh, created this coalition or, uh, or created or uh, incentivized this coalition between networks of uh, drug trafficking and environmental organized crime. So they are now sharing the infrastructure and logistic uh, so they are using the same routes for transportation, and illegal mining has been, has been uh, a source of money laundering. So the most impor important drug cartel in Brazil is now uh, deeply involved with the organized crime in Amazonia, and I would make a bracket and say that uh, this uh, big uh, drug cartel in Brazil was also strengthened after decades of politics of mass incarceration and the, the previous drug policy has a lot to do uh, with that result. Uh, I wanted to mention that there is the situation, uh, in this, within the situation there is a constant violence against indigenous population. They are expelled from their territories, the rivers have been poisoned, uh, and uh, there is a progressive involvement also with the local populations in different chains of this, uh, of this uh, network. Uh, I, would, I must say that our main problem is not uh, crops, but uh, the transit and other uh, chains of the, of the uh, organized crime. And finally, indigenous women are constant victims of sexual violence. So this is just to make a, a brief description of what we're living and how urgent it is that we tackle this, the, the, the problem together. Uh, the, our Minister of Justice uh, just established a program that's called uh, Amazonia Masegura, uh, Safer Amazon. And there is... Uh, of course, a big police, federal police operation to try to, uh, to expel illegal mining from the indigenous lands and to apprehend all their equipments and etc. But besides that, we are also sending healthcare, social assistance, and uh, territorial development. This is one of the discussions we're having here at CND. How can we adapt the idea of alternative development to foster territorial development in the Amazonia and combining it, of course, with environmental protection. Uh, we are now also changing uh, the law on, on the gold chain. There was, in fact, uh, a problem in our legislation that made that uh, traceability uh, very weak. But I also would like to call the responsibility of the global financial market that are receiving gold from uh, illegal mining in Brazil and that comes from deforestation and, and uh, violation of indigenous rights. So that, that was really just to call attention to the situation and to reinforce my colleague's speech on the importance of this uh, panel. Thank, Thank you so you. much. That was Marta Macado. Brazil's National Secretary for Drug Policy, delivering closing remarks at a side event entitled Aligning Drug Policy with Environmental Protection that was held at the 66th session of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs that was held recently in Vienna, Austria. And for now, that's it. 
Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. A big thank you to my friends at Drug Reporter for that crisp, clean copy of the event audio. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. And you make it all possible. Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Theme music for Free Culture Radio is composed and performed by Tom Nickel in Four Dimensional Nightmare and is used with permission of the artist. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Thank you.